Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Erin. And welcome to episode 99 of Holy our, shit. yeah, of our little pod. Yeah, granted, there are obviously more episodes than that since we do interviews and bonus pods and so on. But this is the regular episode 99. What a wild ride. I feel like Mr. Toad, you know? Well, here's the thing, like, I don't want to make a Gretzky reference, but I just did. (laughs) I mean, that's really Canadian of us. It's very Canadiana. Anyway, I want to just go through the admin with you guys, as we do every week. Uh, I'm going to harp on the anti-racism masterclass that Not In My Color is putting together. And basically, we created this class in order to um, address some things that we think are missing from current training, such as historical context of current issues, systemic versus individual implicit bias so we do more of the systemic rather than just the individual and you know I I find that a lot of anti-racism or 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 diversity or inclusion masterclasses don't really talk about power and that is instrumental in understanding the world around us so um, Anna, my business partner, will join us on the podcast just a little later to talk about one of our topics. So go to notinmycolor.com slash masterclass to enroll. Second up, I am doing a, um, a sort of, of mentorship program called J School Noir. J School is journalism school, for those who don't know. And J School Noir is a one-day training session. Actually, it's two days this year and virtual. And a year-long mentoring program that introduces Black youth aged 12 to 18 to the field of journalism. Uh, J School Noir was transformational from the moment the Canadian Association of Black Journalists launched it in Halifax, during Black History Month last year. So this will be the second year. Uh, It starts in February, a week earlier than the Not In My Color Masterclass. Um, The University of King's College, which sponsored the inaugural event, committed to a long-term funding partnership with the Canadian Association of Black Journalists even before the session began. The co-sponsors our global news, Google, and Yahoo. And um, we're, we're announcing um, a couple scholarships earmarked for Black students. So um, this is now spreading from Halifax to Halifax, Ottawa, and I believe Edmonton, who, and this will start in about a couple of weeks. So This is to help Black journalism students and obviously to get them sort of started and mentored 
on the road to journalism, especially since journalism is changing so much and there's so many stories that need to be told. Okay, I personally will be leading the social media and news podcasting session and I will probably talk about content, content curation, some technical stuff, um, some stuff that Bad and Bitchy is done, has done. Third, um, I would really, really like to keep this um, podcast open and accessible. Uh, as I've learned and said that the lies are free, but the truth is paywalled. So let's not paywall the truth in this case. So donate to Bad and Bitchy. Help us continue to offer this for free um, to everybody. You could donate to us through Patreon, patreon.com slash Bad and Bitchy. Or you can donate to me, uh, Erica at notinmycolor.com. Um, and, you know, just whatever you do, uh, share, listen, and comment. All like right. Share. Like, share. You yeah. Know, like, like, yeah. <laughs> listen, y'all love hitting the like button on Twitter, but no one's fucking retweeting. You know what's more useful? The retweets. Yeah, I find that, you know, have you ever noticed that I find that Americans retweet a lot more fluidly than Canadians? I've I've seen this. There's no research to this. This is just anecdotal from my own feed and other feeds. But I just find that. Yeah, I think it goes to this, like, idea that Canadians are polite. So, like, how dare they share something that maybe says the word fuck, but they're just going to like it and be like, haha, no one could tell that I like this thing. Hee hee. But we can. I know. Because <laughs> that's how Twitter works. Okay, so um, please share in terms of a retweet and tell everybody about Bad and Bitchy. That's basically what it comes down to. Word of mouth, people. It's still valuable. All right. So when we come back this week in feminism. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, 
characters and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert. How could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens, but one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the West. We will rise from the wind-swept Northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked South. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough 
to be it. So that was Amanda Gorman, um, who is a poet uh, born in Los Angeles in 1998. Oh, geez, I'm old. Oh, my God. Jeez. She was raised by her mother, Joan Wicks, a teacher, and her two siblings. She has a twin sister, Gabrielle, who's also an activist, but a filmmaker. And in 2016, Gorman founded the nonprofit organization One Pen, One Page, a youth writing and leadership program. And in 2017, Gorman was the first person to be named National Youth Poet Laureate. Um, I found the poem to be quite apropos. (laughs) Um, It definitely set the tone. It definitely, it was part mourning and part hopeful like the sun will rise tomorrow kind of thing and so I I found that that was just the general tone of the inauguration what do you think I have to say uh first of all I loved her outfit um so I thought it was I thought the 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 yellow the sunshine yellow was very um again apropos I love the use of color um in these outfits like the whole inaugural fashion was pretty it was pretty spectacular it was Um, very fresh it felt fresh even though it was very cold there exactly so lady gaga sang this the star-spangled banner dressed in a navy cashmere jacket and a red silk skirt uh, made for her by Chaparelli, a Paris-based fashion house helmed by Daniel Roseberry. And he said in a statement, as an American living in Paris, this ensemble is a love letter to the country I miss so dearly. She also wore a gilded dove brooch, a sign of peace that was affixed to the bodice of the jacket. Um, so... Everything about this inauguration seemed an effort to soothe the nation from Garth Brooks' simple rendition of Amazing Grace to Amanda Gorman. Um, But fashion really played a role and spoke to this occasion, uh, the history that unfolded and the way in which the administration sees the country moving forward. It celebrated America in its diversity and complexity. Uh, as Robin Givan, who I think is probably the best fashion writer right now. Totally, um, absolutely. Uh, so eloquently put in her, in her um, column this, this last week. Uh, I think I'm going to, we should break here and talk about why we're talking about fashion. Because this is what <laughs> happens, okay? What happens is, when you start talking about fashion or makeup, people like people, especially intellectuals, start rolling their eyes and they're like, why do we have to partake in such frivolous talk about frivolous topics? And to which I say, um, you're missing the point. And, and I think that there are people who like uh, progressives who would be like, oh, well, this is like perpetuating capitalism. And sexism. Absolutely. 
So I would like to say that women have especially uh, have used fashion, uh, women, women identifying, um, LGBTQ community has used, activists have used fashion to communicate something, either a mood, an individual mood, their own individualism, what they believe in, or um, a moment or a, uh, in the case of the inauguration, a tone. They, it set the stage for the tone of this administration. And in politics, optics matters. Actually, optics just matter. Um, and so, for example, I will add an example. So, um, the first time I met Sandy Hudson um, of Black Lives Matter, Toronto, who is also who is also on McLean's power list. Yeah, top fifty most powerful in Canada. Right. So shout out to Sandy. Um, top ten. Top ten. Thankfully, she was the antidote to that Toby person from Shopify, which I have feelings about. Uh, but that will be saved for another day. Or the Hill Times column this week, last week, if you read it. Um, so she, I said, you know, the fashion, right? And she said, and she talked about how deliberate it was. And she talked about, about the, what they were trying to project and how the makeup worked into it and the combat boots and the black and the, the hair and how the hair was done. It's all very deliberate. And it was used to project an idea, a mood, a tone. And so in ignoring that, you do miss part of that deeper story. And so um, I know, I know, like, especially Black activists are all about this. Like, it's it's the Florence Griffith Joyner um, sprinter who had her nails, her very very long nails, done all the time. It is um, it is how we make ourselves up for the world. How do we face the world without saying a word? Yeah, and I think like I think I was probably too young to pay attention to fashion during. George Bush's presidency, you know, I was a teenager. And, and I think that with Michelle Obama, it started becoming more into the public consciousness more regularly. You know, her first inaugural dress was Jason Wu, who was basically entirely unknown at the time. Um, and then it was- just And like very- Canadian. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and of color. Yeah, Asian. Um, and- you know, from there it was very much like, oh, she shops at J. Crew. She's very accessible. She's kind of just like you and I, and or like a Kate Middleton shopping on the high the high street. Um, and then you've got Melania Trump, and I think that we really saw people glomming onto what she was wearing early on in the administration because she was just saying "fuck you" to this idea that you know this is an opportunity to present to promote young American designers and like elevate them to a global stage. Um, but, you know, 
Melania Trump was more just about her European brands or her I don't really care jacket. And so she wasn't about looking to like elevate people because she wanted more out of it than she could give to others. Oh, well put. I don't really care. Do you? Exactly. She's like that personified. Yes. Yes. Um, And like, if you think of, you know, Michelle Obama, who, who elevated uh, designers of color a lot. Um, Isabel Toledo is another uh, designer that she wore. Uh, This, I believe she and Kamala were the same designer. I believe. Um, for the inauguration. Um, so first of all, Michelle Obama slayed. I was just like, who is, oh my gosh. Like I, anyway, I was. Twitter loved it. I loved watching it unfold on Twitter. Her hair and her, her hair stylist is, is a young black woman too. Mm -hmm. Um, Swearing in designed by a black LGBTQ designer, uh, and his name is Hudson, Sergio Hudson. And um, he's he also designed looks for Michelle Obama's Becoming Book Tour and the Essence Festival. And his clients include Rihanna and Beyonce. Kamala wore his shoes. And um, her outfit was by a black designer, Christopher John Rogers. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, that was very deliberate, obviously. Um, and that is saying, I hate to say it, but that's like their attempted inclusion, basically. And that's Just, a sign. Yeah, it's kind of setting up the, what, what is important to them in terms of a value system. Exactly. The first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, chose a dress and coat by New York-based label Markarian, which was, is it Markarian? I don't know. I've never seen it before. Okay. So, okay. Somebody's going to correct me on Twitter anyway. (laughs) Um, The 34-year-old designer grew up in Colorado, created the ocean blue tweed coat, adorned with crystals and paired with a matching dress in her New York work workroom. The color expresses a sense of calm and stability. First of all, I loved Dr. Biden's outfit. I was like, <gasps> it was, it was very chic. And apparently all of the like fashion people were a gag with it. A gog, a gag, I don't know. A gag, I guess. I don't know. Exactly. I don't know. Anyway, um, Biden himself uh, wore a navy suit and an overcoat created for him by Ralph Lauren. Now, I thought the Ralph Lauren choice was very, 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 very deliberate. This is your American iconic brand, right? That um, where, you know, America is looked at as this almost like a manifest destiny in a way. And everything good about this nation is uh, wrapped up in Ralph Lauren. Yeah, because Um, of all the things he's done before. Like, he's dressed celebrities. He's dressed, you know, Democrats, Republicans. Yeah. He dressed, uh, designed the uh, uniforms for the 
U.S. Olympic team the last Olympics. So they've got a contract for the probably the next few Olympic games. Mm-hmm. Like he's deeply entrenched in like American culture or Amer- quote unquote Americana. Yes. And I feel like this is the sartorial representation of the American dream. Yeah, it's not like he was going to go out there wearing, like, Virgil Abloh, like. No. Oh, gosh, no. Could you imagine him and some, like, him and, like, Mina Harris's husband just, like, rolling around in those Dior J, like, Jordan 1s? Why don't they roll out in Supreme? (laughs) God. Okay. Um, VP, Vice President Kamala Harris. Okay, before we get to Kamala, her stepdaughter. Um, in her Mew Mew coat was like stole the show like she has this Annie sort of look this Diane Keaton and Annie sort of like crossover menswear look Mm. that she just rocks I love it have you seen her on Instagram (gasps) I didn't follow her on Instagram what was I thinking yeah um, Ella Emhoff yeah, is her name. Uh, 22 years old. So uh, Kamala Harris uh, first came the camel coat worn to the COVID memorial service with its multitude of pleats falling from a wave at the back. It was a beautiful coat, by is a beautiful coat. It was created by Kirby Jean Raymond of Pyre Moss, a designer dedicated to putting Black Americans back at the center of the country's cultural fables. He was among the first designers to organize distribution of PPE at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, as well as to raise money to help small businesses crushed by lockdown. Next was the bright purple coat and dress at the swearing-in ceremony designed by Christopher John Rogers, worn with Mrs. Ms. Harris's signature pearls. Uh, from Puerto Rican jeweler Wilfredo Rosado and the Politico's little flag pin. Born in Louisiana, based in New York, and still in his 20s, Mr. Rogers has a penchant for combining old-time dressmaker detailing with high-octane glamour. And finally, for the evening, there was the black sequin dress under a tuxedo coat by Sergio Hudson, a designer working and manufacturing in Ms. Harris's home state of California. Okay, so we have a whole, obviously, shout out to Black people in this one. Because mm-hmm. they know where their votes came from. This week, uh, or sorry, last week, as it will be known, um, Biden, in his first, I think, three days in office, signed 30 executive actions, including um, restoring collective bargaining power and worker protections for federal workers, which lays the foundation for a $15 minimum wage. Um, A lot of coronavirus stuff, uh, stop the US withdrawal from the world, Health Organization with Dr. Anthony Fauci becoming the head of the delegation to to the WHO. Um, Rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. uh, Rescinds the Trump administration's 1776 commission 
and directs agencies to review their actions to ensure racial equality, um, requires non-citizens to be included in the census and appoint apportionment of congressional representatives, um, fortifies DACA after Trump's efforts to undo protections for undocumented people brought into the country as children, reverses the Muslim ban, um, undoes Trump's expansion of immigration enforcement within the US, halts construction of the border wall by terminating the national emergency declaring declaration used to fund it. He rescinded the Keystone Pipeline, which we will talk about in a bit. All right. So basically, Joe Biden is like on his way to making Justin Trudeau look like Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I wish y'all could see her arrogant face right now. She's just like, <laughs> I just fucking dropped my mic. End of conversation. I'm just like, that's it. Oh, I, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> There's just been discourse about like, oh, well, because, you know, Biden ran on this unity platform and then Republicans are like, yeah, unity, haha, white flag, we surrender. And then, you know, the GOP is just like, okay, but like doing all of these things and rescinding all the things we like, that's not unity. No, no, no. So now there's that discourse. And frankly, I'm just tired of it all. Everyone's done. Well, why he ran on a unity platform is beyond me. Doesn't he not know who he's dealing? No, you know what the thing is? Him and Obama, okay? This is what pisses me off. Because Joe Biden knew Mitch McConnell for 30 years, it's this, like, gentleman's agreement bullshit that he thinks he can rely on, okay? And I'm just like, no, they're actually out for blood. Do you not know that this these are just parlor tricks to them? That they were instrumental in in, in carrying out fucking treason biden looks more progressive than he as a centrist would lend you would think that he as a centrist would be but then i remember oh yes let's see where these votes came from okay yeah so um the black people of course who are not necessarily more progressive per se but the whole racial aspect is a big deal. And what I'm going to love to see, and I'm going to be sitting here pouring my tea and cackling, okay, is when Biden goes further than Trudeau could even think to market on racial equity policy. Mm -hmm. I want to see that shit. And when that shit comes in, I'm just going to be like, well, relative is everything. Nothing is absolute. Relative is everything. It's fine. I mean, it's the same thing with environmentalism, the same thing with the environment. Mm -hmm. Keystone um, that we'll get to was the political foot. It was the political North Star of environmentalism. And environmental um, activists did a brilliant job in sort of labeling Keystone as this um, as this environmental trap, like if you've, if you 
give this permit or if you decide to go down this road, then you're not really serious about climate change. And what I find is that what I'm seeing and I'm hoping is that this Biden administration is treating climate change like the existential threat it is knowing the 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 absolute devastation that it could do and you know that's the squad that's um that's not biden that's not biden it's just not he you know biden is like trudeau with his little you know carbon tax business it's like yeah let's put a tax on it Mm -hmm. but i just think we're way past the carbon tax Oh, absolutely. We're, we're fighting the, like, not we, but they're fighting the carbon tax. And I just believe that climate change mitigation has gone way past the climate, the, the, the carbon tax. Absolutely not. And I, I would say that, like, the, the big, like, there's one thing about Trudeau and Biden that um, they are similar in is that they know that they're not the smartest in the room. Mm-hmm. I would say a major and important difference is that from, from my understanding um, and what I've just seen on like TV and Twitter is that Biden is more into the details. He wants to know a little bit more on like how the policy is going to work. And I would put Hillary Clinton on like the far end of who wants to know every single word in the policy brief. And that could be a function of them spending time in the Senate and, and knowing think, how that sausage is made, knowing how policy becomes policy. Yeah. And I think that's why he's allowed his policies, particularly his, well, in this example, his environmental policies to be for, pushed further to the left because he brought in all of the like um, Sunshine Project people who would help craft the Green New Deal Mm -hmm. onto his policy team during the campaign to help him like bolster um what he was planning to do and so like you know you can when you're in a primary you can your platform in the primary is what you believe but then now it once you become the candidate it has to become broader and attract to more people i yeah i agree um but i also think that they know that the numbers are there in terms of population and demographics. It's just, are the numbers there politically in the Senate? And so that's gonna be the real test. I mean, this is a man who's pushing for a $15 minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Like K, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like that was, not, that was not even possible a year ago, a year and a half ago, right? And it just goes to show um, how much things have changed, how much this pandemic has changed things, Mm -hmm. the protests have changed things, and this insurrection has changed things. Mm -hmm. Those three events over the past year has just shifted politics, the Overton window, as, as people like to call it. And well, it's a thing. Um, and um, also, you know, our perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the $15 minimum wage, um, the federal workers want uh, executive order that lays the groundwork for the federal $15 minimum wage in the US is interesting because that's something that has the possibility of 
breaking apart the Republican Party because it is very popular with um, Republicans who make less than $40,000, regardless of their skin color. Yeah. Less popular with those who make more money because they're probably business owners and they don't want to have to pay. (laughs) They don't want to have the pressure to pay their, their staff more money. Yeah. And so American politics may break apart through class too. And that, like you said, that will be on the Republican side for the most part. And and it's interesting in this, in this case, because it's across racial lines, right? Like usually it's more class-based or skin, like based on your skin color more than anything. Like there's a real intersection there. Here we go. So Biden had uh, four urgent out of the gate priorities that their administration would address. Number one is COVID. So free testing for, for Americans, ramped up personal protective equipment production while ensuring future American manufacturing of PPE and equitable vaccination. Interesting. The economy. So aid to states, localities, and businesses investing in education and healthcare and making good on an infrastructure upgrade. Racial equity, ensuring access for people of color to jobs, home ownership, higher education, retirement savings, and other necessities, and climate change. Spending on clean energy, building retrofits and green infrastructure while helping communities that bear the brunt of pollution. That sounds like environmental um, justice to me. So just with these kind of four priorities, four urgent priorities, uh, I found climate change and racial equity, which is what we were talking about. Uh, Obviously, the economy, obviously COVID. But the fact that those two are just so high on the list is because of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, And also, of course, votes, you know, who voted for whom and him getting elected (laughs) and stuff like that. So um, I find so that's why I say, like, I find that Trudeau is going to look really like everybody's saying how progressive Trudeau is, where I have to find evidence for that in terms of legislation beyond just talk. Um, yeah, I was reading in Politico this morning that a couple of reporters um, were basically saying that in ideologically, like there's an emphasis on equity in the Biden administration. Um, and that's definitely in these early executive actions. Um, you know, the reporters noted that the policies are far more self-consciously wrapped in the language of racial justice and gender equality than any Democrat since Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, they noted that there's already a backlash against this type of language with critics on both the right and left hmm, arguing that maybe I will say the Democrats and the Republicans arguing that some of these policies complicate, if not contradict, talks of unity which you know I think is stupid yeah well you know what uh it depends on who you're trying to unify with and if those people find that equity is just a bridge too far maybe you shouldn't be unifying with them 
I'm just yeah, saying. It, it also depends. That's on the problem with this unity business, this unity sort of branding. It's terrible. I would I would avoid that like the plague. Yeah. And it depends on who you're talking to, too. Right. Like if you're talking to Joe Manchin, who like maybe himself might believe more in like equity, but, you know, knows Joe, that his Joe who? Joe who in equity? I'm just saying, no, but maybe, maybe West Virginia, Joe, (laughs) he's from West Virginia. Like, let's get this straight. Okay. The man like has no, what's he going to do after he loses his Senate seat? Like, I don't know. Why do you think, why do you think Einstein's still around? She's like 4,000 years old and going to be seeking reelection. Oh. That's, Don't even get me started. That, that's insulting. And she's, you know, she's a problem. She's just a yeah. problem to progress. Anyway, go on. Well, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I could see that ruffling feathers, but who gives a shit? I mean, honestly, at some point you have to be like, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. You like, you can't wait for white people to get on board. Like, didn't Martin Luther King tell us about that? And he's like, fuck them. <laughs> They're a problem. These moderates are a problem. Biden's stimulus plan. Mm-hmm. $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan calls for stimulus checks, unemployment support, and more. Okay, so uh, 1400 Direct payments to be added to December $600 payments for $2,000. Okay. Increasing the federal per week unemployment benefit to $400 a week, I believe. Um, Increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Extend the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums until the end of September. Local and state aid institutions, this $50 billion towards COVID testing, $20 billion toward a national vaccine program, um, making the child tax credit fully refundable for the year and increasing it to $3,000 a child. Uh, yeah, that's pretty, I mean, some of that's pretty Republican, especially the child tax credit, but still. I mean, we're getting somewhere here. We're going, we're going somewhere here. You know, there's a, there's a plan. Yes. Yes. There is a plan. The and bar is subterranean. It is, you know, it is. Um, but I, there's also food aid too. And I think there is something in here for childcare mm. uh, beyond the child tax credit. And I just like I said, again, I I think that Joe Biden is going to make Trudeau look like Thatcher. Yeah, I imagine the whole like environmental policy thing is challenging just because like we're such a resource based economy, right? Like, aha, but we were sold the bill of goods that we could do both, which I thought was horseshit, but whatever. Yeah, and the question is. I mean, one of the questions is like, can we do both? The other one is, should we do both? Uh, And the third question is like, if we want to do both, what side are we compromising? You know, because we can't have 
you can't have it all to go back to like last week's massages of the week. Um, you know, something's got to give. And so is it, you know, us losing Keystone or is it, uh, and like having better environmental policies or is it keeping things like Keystone and losing um, political capital and be, being seen as less of a, an economic leader or sorry, environmental leader. That's what it's good. I just, you know, I, you know, so now pivoting, like pivoting to Keystone and, and Jason Kenny and let me just preface the whole Keystone thing by saying the world has shifted. Jason Kenny has not. And he's like that kid digging its, his heels in because things aren't going his way. And um, the world has shifted. We talked about like the, the three key um, events, the pandemic, um, the protests, the racial justice, Black Lives Matter protests, Black Lives Matter protests. Let me not, let me not dilute it. Um, and, you know, the insurrection. Well, I would also include the, the election of Joe Biden. Okay. The election. Yeah, the election of Joe Biden. So four things um, have fundamentally shifted this society, um, that Overton window and how we view the same issues. At the end of the day, Keystone was just never going to happen. It was never going to happen. Yeah, I think that, you know, having Trump as president allowed us to pretend to be the adult in the room and like, and now that Biden's back, we're like, oh, we're actually like the little brother now. Um, yeah, again. Mm-hmm. And and so now I, it's, it's a period of readjustment to realize that like, we now have to recognize where our place is in the world and be fine with it. Um, apparently on Wednesday, he will likely sign an executive order that initiates a series of regulatory actions to combat climate change domestically and elevate climate change as a national security priority. Like climate change is a national security threat. Yeah, it's also an immigration issue. It's also a lot of different issues altogether. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm saying is that we have dilly dallied around for the last four years and have done dick all. We still think a lot of these things, particularly around um, climate change, that they still exist in silos. We don't understand that they all have huge interplay with each other. Exactly. And are systemic. I don't think we understand what the hell systemic means, to be I honest. I assure you, we don't. <laughs> I know I've seen it. Sign up for our masterclass, everybody. Ah! Like, okay. Yeah, when you try uh, to explain systemic racism to people, they're like, I don't get it. I'm not a racist. Uh, and you're just like, oh my gosh, where do I start with you? What's the, what's the, what's the sentiment like in Alberta over this whole thing? I think a lot of people in Alberta were just like, well, they're pissed off and they're pissed off 
that money's gone. They're pissed off at Jason Kenney. Um, they, I think there is a, a growing recognition now rather than a year ago that, you know, um, I mean, it's still small, but it's there that maybe, um, maybe we do need to, you know, start thinking about a world beyond um, Alberta oil as our, our largest export. Um, it reminds me of, of Quebec in that way is that like they have a hard time thinking outside of themselves. Or yes. Just every province. Cause I was just thinking that, yeah, BC is kind of like that too. Ontario also definitely like that, but people mostly jealous. I don't live in Vancouver. I don't think that this is going to go the same way that Kenny thought it would. Because let me just set the stage here. Let me give some some uh, context here. Um, people are still really pissed off at Kenny over the lockdown or his handling of coronavirus writ large. And the the whole MLAs going away on trips, some even pretending they were still in the province, really pissed people off in Alberta. Yeah, he really mishandled that. He mishandled it. It was it was not only that this happened on Jason Kenny's watch. It's like he excused it. That's also what pissed people off. And this is a man who came into into power basically talking about doing the opposite you know, small government, government's not going to, you know, government is is not going to make winners or losers. Um, picking winners or losers when it comes to governments investing in or providing loan guarantees to major industrial projects, um, I would get the Alberta government out of the business of business, out of the losing business of picking winners and losers he said in a speech um, posted by Unite Alberta Twitter account in 2017. So, um, you know, his inability to foresee what even TC executives foresaw, uh, a lot of them, like these executives were hedging their bets. That's why they were kind of holding back on the pipeline, right? Um, and one has to ask in terms of the whole risk assessment, why would you invest in a pipeline that, that relies on America when America is poised to have an election that year and the guy who might win has already said in presidential primaries, because everybody on the Democratic ticket in those presidential primaries around February or March or April said, actually February or March said, no, we're going to rescind Keystone the, when we get into office. Every mm-hmm. one of them, none, not one of them said, oh, I'll think about it. <laughs> you know, nobody. The level and, of hubris is, is, is incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. It's like white male mediocrity, like personified. It really is. And so what happened was, so Jason Kenney in March of 2020 
invested $1.5 billion plus another $6 billion in loan guarantees as the pandemic was picking up, by the way. Um, to, to in the Keystone XL pipeline project. This project um, was, I think, to, it's a $14.4 billion US dollars pipeline that would link Alberta's crude production with the heavy oil refineries in Texas and Louisiana. So right now, Alberta has to sell its crude it's low quality bitumen uh, on the world scale or on the world market, which is heavily discounted compared to um, crude oil from like Saudi Arabia, right? That's the good shit. And so this would link uh, crude oil production straight to the refineries that would then refine it into um, into lighter products that sell for more. So the fact that Canada doesn't have its own refinery in Alberta is has been a point of contention for a long time in Alberta. Um, you know, one of my problems with Canada and Canadian the Canadian economy and the Canadian resource economy is that they spend so much energy and effort getting the shit out of the ground and they don't spend enough effort into refining it into something else into something better that they can then sell for a higher price and can then create a sort of vertical you know pardon the pun pipeline of vertical integration in that good right and also be creating more jobs and creating more jobs that has always been Canada has always been somewhat pedestrian in its outlook, its economic outlook in that sense. And I think that has come back to bite us in the ass over and over and over again. Yet it's something nobody talks about. Anyway. Have you ever gotten a reason as to why that is? No, I just think it's Canada. <laughs> like, think about, like, think about it. Like, and and I, I feel like it's our is it ethos? I think it's the word. I get mixed up between ethos and pathos. I think it's our ethos. Like we are like, we have this mercantilist mindset, this Canada is both the colonizer and the colonized. It's really weird about this country. Mm-hmm. And in being colonized, Canada um, sees itself as just the provider of raw materials for somebody else to manufacture. And the the ease with which we gave up our manufacturing base in this country is actually alarming, to be fair. Anyway, let me get off myself. I, I was trying to think of like a food-related example, mm-hmm. but I couldn't. It's like when if you we ordered a pizza or you ordered a pizza and I just sent it to you with just the cheese. And I was like, yeah, with just the ingredients. On the side. It's literally, Canada is literally HelloFresh. So it works, yeah. Like, that's the Canadian economy. <laughs> it's like a HelloFresh model. We'll send you the ingredients, maybe some instructions. <laughs> Go to town. Go manufacture <laughs> that shit yourself. And you're just like, or Canada could actually invest. And I don't know, I don't know what the thinking is around um, 
like financing for these projects either. What it seems to me is the Alberta government uh, and the investors of these projects are at a total opposite ends. They're, they're, they're not in conjunction anymore. At the end of the day, these projects, these huge fossil fuel-based projects aren't being financed like they used to be. You know, these endowment funds have stopped investing in fossil fuels. Um, BlackRock, that is one of the leading, if not the leading sort of um, investment company, wealth management investment, probably hedge fund-ish kind of deal. They're taking climate change seriously. Uh, Think of Mark Carney, right? And Mark Carney thinking and his um, attempts to address climate change through the Bank of England you know, there's just no money in it anymore. Like the investment isn't there. It's, this is really interesting to me because like there are instruments where people can like try to project over the medium and long term, like over the next 20 to 30 years based on like things that are happening now. So like in terms of climate change, you'd be like, oh, Elon Musk, he's got this Tesla. Oh, it's an electric vehicle. Oh, like what does that mean? Then you would check like, the stock market for the stock price. And you'd be like, oh, electric car sales have increased X percentage points over the past year, the past three years, the past five years. Huh, what do we think that's gonna mean over the, 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 20, the 10, 15, 20, 30 year time span? And you, know, you get all of these different things related to like, you know, natural resources or like oil and you think put them all together you, you map them out you're like huh yeah this doesn't look good for us how should we change our own business practices to plan for that future well and that's what um blackrock ceo uh larry fink uh in his annual letter to chief executives i think it was 20 or 2020 uh he said oh quote awareness is rapidly changing And I believe we are on the edge of a fundamental reshaping of finance, unquote. Now, a lot of this, and this is why I say democracy requires activism from the people with less power to influence those with more power, Mm -hmm. right? And the whole idea is... What climate change activism has done in the last 30 years is nothing short of remarkable. And so when people are like protests don't work, these are obviously comfortable white people. So and, you know, nobody should be checking for them for it. They're they're not leading anything they're following. Right. Literally nothing would have gotten done in North America without protests. Thank you. Think of like extinction, I think of Extinction Rebellion in Britain, for example, whose demonstrations are legendary. They're like, (laughs) they're so extra, you know what I mean? Um, I'm not saying that BlackRock and BP and Shell and ExxonMobil, who are also moving towards, you know, more uh, sustainable um, 
I don't want to say environmentally friendly because they're oil companies, but let's just say sustainable energy sources, right? Jason Kenney's favorite line is, well, if the U.S. doesn't get it from us, then they'll just go to, you know, less desirable countries to get their oil. And it's like, no, they won't. Because number one, the U.S. under Obama became uh, a net oil energy exporter. Obama vetoed Keystone back in 2012. And after the company reapplied for permits, uh, it was denied the permits again in 2015. Trump re-resurrected it in like 20, what, 19 or something. Yeah, he just like, you know, he was like, that ah, was this. <laughs> but, but that was already three years into his presidency, right? With a year left, what was actually going to get done and what was going to get done that was going to be sustainable? I'm sorry, like when you put it that way, it just sounds so incredibly dumb. Because it is. Like, what a bad decision. Well, I think... Like, it's not even, like, there's not even, you don't even need, like, foresight to be like, oh, is this a sustainable policy? Be like, oh, it's a U.S. election year. Huh, maybe I'll wait six months. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll wait to see how this all shakes out, which is what the investors did and the company itself did. But we're, are, isn't this the same Alberta government? that got a four to one decision in February of 2020 from the Alberta Court of Appeal to become the first to declare the federal carbon tax unconstitutional. And the, they took it to the Supreme Court that has reserved judgment on the carbon tax, Alberta, of course, being one of the provinces to challenge its constitutionality. And this is the same Alberta government pivoting to the U.S. and say, see, we have a carbon tax. I, I think part of the reason that Kenny is latching on so close to this, knowing that it's a loser and knowing that he looks like an idiot, excuse me, is for one, he doesn't think he looks like an idiot. And for two, I mean, let's be honest, his COVID response has been awful. This is some, one, excuse me, one place where he's found um, success is when he um he turns into maverick kenny who is fighting for alberta jobs and the alberta alberta oil sands he's pulling the, the the wool over everyone's eyes yeah you know because this man is a premium gaslighter and you know he always blames other people for which is which is a really a conservative thing like i'm just like mm -hmm. it really is to blame other people for and not taking personal responsibility so, so what i'm saying direction yeah what i'm saying is that he needs to take some personal responsibility for his which is like, ironic since that's what you know they're preaching about when they're with their lax COVID rules. They're like, well, it's personal responsibility. People can decide whether or not they wear a mask or whether or not they travel. Thank you. And I just think that's what he's doing. He's trying to ignite his base 
so that they remember why he was elected in the first place. This has everything to do with Jason Kenney and Alberta gets the runoff. So do you, do you think that this is working out in his favor? Like, how do you think this is going to do in, with his polling, for example? Just because, like, I, I see people, like, annoyed that, or mad that all of these jobs won't be created. And I know people are upset about his COVID response. And then you've got, like, Jen Gerson's, like, one of her rare good columns in the CBC was about, like, Oh, Jason Kenney fucked up again. How is this dumb thing like experiment in Alberta going with the UCP? So like, I don't know, like are people upset with him? Are they happy with him? Like I, what? No, I, they're not happy with him. Cause right now the NDP is polling higher than the UCP. Oh, interesting. I'm telling you that, that Christmas MLA business really sank him. I mean, COVID sank him, but that one was really irritating. And let's not forget, like, Jason Kenney also basically blamed the South Asian uh, population for the uptick in COVID, like, COVID cases. I mean, Uh, that that goes to show the importance of, you know, your comms approach and making sure that it is accessible to everyone who lives... This is also the same Jason Kenney that that, you know, that wasted 30 million dollars on his friggin war room. You know, (laughs) I mean, I mean, complete with plagiarizing a logo. I can't tell if, you know, these poor decisions are made have been made because, um, that that's what Jason Kenny like actually believes, or if it's due to his inability to, like you said, to hold on to like the old his old way of working and the old politics, and like he just hasn't been able to adapt. And I wonder if that then there is because of the time he took off and like away from politics. I think it would have happened anyway. I think these guys are. A rel- are starting to look like a relic of a different time mm. and the time the the um the the our culture our politics our social um cues our culture is changing so rapidly on a dime right. however had you been paying attention and taken seriously the undercurrents that were happening before then you're the only surprise you have is like, oh, this is really happening, you know? Right. And I think, yeah. And like, you know, that things changing so fast. I think that's what um, people cite a lot of the, the, the white lash, you know, the, due to ah. things changing so rapidly and like, regardless of whether or not that's necessarily related to race, because it could also be related to the environment and whatever, And so they just like have this like, quote unquote, economic insecurity, which I don't think it's necessarily economic insecurity. Oh, were those the people who took the private jet to the insurrection? Those people? (laughs) But like, I think that like people like that have some genuine concerns. I just think that, you know, a lot of there's a, a very big overlap in the Venn diagram with people who are anti-science and anti-information and pro-propaganda and mis- and disinformation and conspiracy theories. 
yeah, the truth is paywall, the lies are free, right? And so I think that, um, you know, with Jason Kenny, he's gotten away with so many, um, you know, manipulation of the truth. You know, those types of manipulations Mm -hmm. have, and, you know, we've had, we've had a media that hasn't called him on it either, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Alberta press corps is just abysmal when it comes to pushing back, you know. And so um, when somebody has that much absolute power, and that's the problem with Jason Kenney, the UCP party is Jason Kenney. There's nobody else to take over from him. Yeah. It rises or falls with Jason Kenney. Mm-hmm. The NDP doesn't, like, obviously not Lee is the leader, but it exists beyond Rachel Notley, right? And so what I am finding is it's it's this train wreck of Jason Kenny is really friggin' fascinating. It is fascinating and it is a cautionary tale. You know, you can either be on the side of Jason Kenny or you can be on the side of history. You know, don't be on the wrong side of history. That's literally everything I ask do not be on the wrong side of history because history is going to roll right over you and you're just going to sound like your great uncle who's you know who is like alone and like dribbling on himself um, (laughs) because nobody wants to be around him or you're like Barbara Kay (laughs) you know what I mean like which is pretty much the same thing right I love it. Those are the options. Yeah, those are your options. Barbara Kay and the old man, or you could be on the right side of history. The real Sophie's choice. The real. <laughs> oh my gosh! Because I, I think what we're seeing is, you know, with Biden coming in, it's it's a signal that things done change. You see that trajectory that Obama started? Yeah, we had four years of misery, but we're back on it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's I'm starting to see the last four years as more of a blip and a backlash, the white lash, uh, than over in an overall trajectory, right, of more of environmentalism, environmental justice, more inclusion, and so on and so forth. I really think that's what it is. It's Absolutely. starting to look that like, way. It was just so hard to see that when yeah. you're in it, right? Like every day was just stressful yeah. and angry, and it's just overwhelming over a prolonged period of time. I think Jason Kenney's problem is that he doesn't have the power in the room. I think that's his real problem, and he doesn't know how to adjust to that. He doesn't think he should because in every room he's had the power, right? right? He's had the power to make the decisions. He's had the power to, to chart course. He, he had, he had a whole province behind him. Uh, he took the anger and the frustration of a province 
that is in itself going through a lot of change. I'm telling you, Alberta politics is wild. I'm just like, whoa, what was I? Oh, I was in Ontario. This is but wild. I could, that's also I, like it's a it's a humility thing, right? Like it's a it's a maturity thing, a humility thing, and it's just this this link to toxic masculinity where yeah. you can't be less than anyone else, regardless of whether or not he thinks they're quote unquote masculine or are smarter or better than him. Like it's brutal. Yeah. And so the way it's delivered, as you said, is toxic masculinity and how that in itself is kind of like, again, you're like, you're, you know, Barbara Kay, you know what I mean? And so (laughs) I, I, I just, I find it fascinating and I find that Canada went from being a leader in this space to on its back heel in the manner of like a day or a week. It really did. And, you know, how uh, Trudeau is going to chart that course is, is going to be interesting to me. He better, he better bring that election sooner rather than later. Because I don't think later is going to serve him very well, unless, unless everybody gets vaccinated. But given that he's relying on the provinces and those same old fuddy-duddy men, good luck with that. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Good luck with that. Because the provinces don't look like they're up to the challenge. What do you think about Bernie and his mittens and that meme that honestly, I would be okay if I never see another one right now because it's been five days. I'm good. Like, I mean, let's just not. Um, the meme itself, love it. Yeah, it's funny as hell. Super funny. Um. I think you're right in that it's it's gone on far too long, especially at the volume. Like pull it out in a few weeks, cool, funny, but like we've seen it in all the jokes. We've seen it in in the Sex in the City. We've seen it in Hamilton. We've seen it in whatever. Trudeau put it in an Instagram post. Like cool, we we get it. We get it. It'll just be now funny when it shows up randomly in a, in a future iconic photo. Right. Um, yeah. And, but now we're at like the Bernie's Mittens discourse, which I have absolutely no time for. I don't give a shit. <laughs> um, yeah. Basically, I mean, there's a whole bunch of discourse. One is the like, Bernie got his mittens from someone when he was on the campaign trail several years ago, and now everyone's harassing the woman who made the gloves. And she's like, please leave me alone. Don't get me wrong. I love the meme. The meme is funny the first couple of days. Um, And it was, you know, putting the meme, I shared it. 
you know, putting the meme in different, it was so apropos for so many situations. I get it. It was cool. Like, but after day three, I'm like, I'm good now. I don't need a conversation. Mm. And this idea, because somebody on, on Facebook wrote about how this meme got, you know, overshadowed um, uh, the, the, the amazing first of women and so on and so forth. And I get that. I get where you're coming from. I think we can do both. But some at first, when I when I first read that, I'm like, I think we can do both. And now it's just gone on too long. Yes. Like, did I cry during the inauguration? Absolutely. Cheered up a little. I don't know that I sobbed, but I, you know, got a little misty eye. It was moving. Yeah. Like, you have a fucking woman vice president. That's cool as shit. Like, that isn't on TV. Oh, by the way, I just want to sh- I just want to say that this is an election for HBCUs, that's historically (laughs) Black colleges and universities, everybody, because I would just like to put out there that it is Howard University that produced the first female vice president, not Harvard. Yep. Okay. Yep. So we're just going to put that out there. And I think that that is, it's almost like a troll. It's so brilliant bernie i think he's done a lot in the party uh since 2015 2016 yes agree 100 percent. i think he has shifted that party left first it was bernie and then kind of the squad took over uh because let's be honest bernie couldn't do the racial justice issues the intersectionality of it like the squad can I know that some people are going to like, you know, throw their phone across the room because I'm sure we have some Bernie supporters. <laughs> However, I, I'm just saying that that is the truth of it. You know, a lot of white progressives especially still do not understand how race intersects with everything. Mm-hmm. And they think that they can, they can, you know, get rid of capitalism and all of a sudden there'll be no racism. Yeah, And that's the shit I can't stand because yeah. that is not it at all. Because it's also really the, ignorant. It's really fucking ignorant. So there's no racism in non-capitalist countries. Is that what you're telling me? Because I can tell you that's not true. Absolutely not true. Okay. Yeah. No, like the post you shared with me on Facebook, I, like, yes, I did kind of get emotional seeing Kamala getting sworn in. But also like, the meme was funny. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not related. Mm-hmm. Like one's a, one's a joke, mm-hmm. and like you're not gonna meme Kamala's swearing in. No. Like what? Didn't Vogue what? already do that? <laughs> like what? 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 What, what, were, what were people expecting? And like, like you could you could you could make an argument that anyone who was on the mic that day could have potentially overshadowed, you know, the gravity of the situation. Gaga's fucking enormous dress. You know? I think it was huge. I was like, where's she going with that? It didn't fit down the aisle. It was stairs. What did she, what was she thinking? Um, the whole JLo let's get loud thing. 
you know any you could argue anything was meant to take away from the moment of the first woman vice president getting sworn in but instead it was mittens because it was a joke i just don't understand yeah i thought it was funny and now it's just played out yeah i like i don't care that it's played out like fine great I'm just saying these, these things. Listen, have someone life. said to me in a meeting last week, "Happy New Year," and it's the end of January. Like, we need to move on from things. <laughs> Let them go. It's okay. <laughs> you know what? It's when you know what you know what turned me off the whole thing. It's it's you know it's that one person who just ruins it for you. And for me, it was Jim Watson. Oh, I didn't see that one. Bless. Jim Watson memed it, and I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. Especially, uh, anyway. So, I mean, I have, I, have conf- I have ambiguous feelings about Bernie in general. Um, but I will say that he has done a lot to, um, to really build the argument and to really be outward and, and unapologetic about his progressive politics. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the hell out of that. Because for so long, if you were progressive or if you believed in racial equity somehow or human rights, you were laughed out of the room as not being serious enough. Yeah. Like, imagine that the word woke is like this pejorative term, right? When all it is, is being like aware of different people who don't walk in your shoes and to make concerted efforts to make them feel included and to and to be aware of their particular identity and so on and so forth. Does it go too far? Sure. Like everything else, it goes too far. Because we can't have fucking nice things. Because we can't have nice things. However... The fact that this is a pejorative term or that social justice warrior is a pejorative term is exactly a problem to me. It's a problem because what is it that you do stand for then? If those things you don't stand for, tell me. That's really funny because there was some Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, had a briefing, I guess, on Friday. And I guess she was asked, about the executive orders that Biden was signing and be like, oh, well, like, is this, how are you, you know, you're supposed to be working on unity. How are, you know, all of these executive orders and not prioritizing Republican priorities a show of unity? And she said, oh, is a living wage not a Republican priority? Is, you know, taking care of, reducing the number of people dying by from COVID, not a Republican priority. Mm-hmm. This like had these rhetorical questions being like, I want, you know, the Republicans to tell me that they do not want people to earn a living wage. Thank you. So there. Because it's, it, it always comes down to, I disagree with you, but they never, people never tell you what they do or stand for. Right. Because they don't stand for anything. They just stand against things. Yeah. Because you are who you are, not because of the actual issue itself. So I guess that's it. <laughs> I guess so. For this episode, 
Um, so we will be back on Friday with Misogynist of the Week. You will like this one like you like all the others. I guarantee it. Um, Make sure Aaron. you like and subscribe and rate us. Yeah, like, subscribe, and rate if you're not going to send money. <laughs> <laughs> or do both. Right. Because like the Bernie meme and the historical context of the inauguration, we can have both. We can do both, everybody. <laughs> All right. So uh, until next time, we will chat to you later. Bye. Bye. Okay, so um, guess who?